Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's make it happen. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm David Summers. Here we go with the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time. Off we go to the Great Smoky Mountains that's where we find the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What do you say, my man, Ron? Hey, man. <clears throat> Good to be with you here. Uh, we got a, got a pretty cloudy day here, but, uh, you know, we got some beautiful leaves, Dave. Wow, it's really beautiful this fall. Uh, it has been for the last uh, week or two, and I guess uh, we'll probably keep these leaves for another couple of weeks, but we've had a freezing temperature already, which is most unusual. But, uh, wow, it's a beautiful place to be, man. That's for sure. All right. So I saw you in a postcard setting the other day. You had a beautiful river behind you and you had, you were there, the, you were surrounded by some of those beautiful leaves. Where was that? What river was that? Well, that was actually, we were close to a dam, uh, Douglas Dam, uh, Douglas Lake, which is, uh, in the very Eastern part of the state, just not too far from the North Carolina border, actually. Wow. A beautiful, beautiful lake. Uh, wow, as you could tell in the yeah, background yeah. and the leaves, you got to see some leaves. And I'll try to do quite a bit of that uh, in in the near future here, man, because uh, I want to I want people to be able to see some of these sites. Uh, it's a beautiful state here, man. That God's country, I call it. Oh, no doubt. And it's so awesome to that you you have time to spend that kind of time. In, in your beloved home of Tennessee, and it's so beautiful, and time is is a real factor. Listen, I know this. You have worked so hard on these studcasts. This is episode number 272. So only a couple of weeks ago, you missed a week, and it was just really based on time. You had a computer issue. You had a couple of other things, and I know how much pressure you've put on yourself literally over the years with every episode and if we were delayed starting it on a Tuesday, it was because I'm not finished with the research. I still have yep. research. And and then to me, it was like, hey, Ron ain't going nowhere until he gets it right. So so it's Wednesday. So today is a little different. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I guess we could probably try, try to explain to fans. As you said, I do a lot of research and sometimes I can't finish them by Tuesday and it goes on into Wednesday and so I think uh, we're gonna, just going to try to make Wednesday the day that we're going to release the studcast in the future. Uh, there may be an occasionally a one on a Tuesday if mm-hmm. I can uh, if I can push it there, 
But uh, I want us to be regular, and I want us fans to know uh, what day to expect it. And so we're doing this one on Wednesday. Uh, we're going to try to do as many as possible from now on, release them on Wednesdays. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I really, really appreciate, obviously, all the listeners out there. And, and wow, I missed a week, and, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and the, the, coming back, the last studcast was another record. I mean, you know, people uh, people kind of missed it, obviously, uh, not getting that one. But uh, we're back up and doing it now, my man, and uh, we got a great one today. Hey, no doubt. And the other thing I know, too, is that you enjoy being out on the weekends and being able to see your state. And so you started the show on Sundays. You were still working on it on Monday, still working on it on Tuesday. And that's a good reason to move this thing another day. Give It gives you a little more time to enjoy yourself. And I think you certainly have earned that. Listen, you, you said we got a good one. You bet we got a good one. And the stud cast are really rocking, Ron. So we've got another record broken with the last one. Listeners are loving the first two-territory operation in professional wrestling history and its stories. You were a groundbreaker in the sport in the 70s and the 80s. The only promoter and owner to split his NWA territory, much less make both of them successful. So... That's an amazing story right there, Stud. Well, you know, I was blessed with some of the best wrestlers in history, man, during 1978 and 79. And uh, it had taken me about uh, three years with Southeastern Knoxville to make it the best small territory in the world. And in March of 1978, we opened the second territory, Southeastern Gulf Coast, about 500 miles to the south. And, uh, and that, it had been losing money for a few years. Uh, before I purchased it, actually, uh, Jim Barnett and the Georgia promoters uh, purchased it before I did. They gave it back because they couldn't make it happen. And then, then we were able to remarkably turn that territory around in only six months. So by August of 1978, uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast had caught up with the gates in Tennessee and, uh, and then that, that territory all over that territory. Uh, and it was proven to be a great buy for us at that point. All right. So the title for this episode on this studcast is Alabama Three Fullers, Tennessee Russian Deathmatch. All right. You mentioned being blessed with great wrestlers in both territories, but I don't think that we've really ever named them all and given them all credit for Southeastern success like in 1978. Would you want to take a shot at recognizing as many as you could, Stud? I know you, that's one of the things you do. I mean, from the from the smallest jobber, as they call it, you, you've always recognized these guys. Just the ones, maybe the ones in this episode alone. So I'll see if I can count them as you go. You want to do that? That should be really interesting, Dave. <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly how many myself, but I have the cards in front of me. So let's start with the future NWA world champion. Uh, Ronnie Garvin, hmm. uh, he's going to win the world championship several years after after Southeastern was uh, done. Mm -hmm. uh, you also got uh, in the territory the human tank. I'm going to call him Tor <laughs> Tanaka. I mean, he basically was a human tank. Yeah. Had the great Malenko. Uh, he had a former Olympic wrestler, Bob Root. You had a Hall of Famer in that Southern Territory, Bob Armstrong. A uh, European star, uh, big time, Tony Charles, my brother Robert, uh, my dad is involved in this one. 
be involved in the next one, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, we, you got a future, we had a future superstar of the Rock and Roll Express tag team, Robert Gibson. And then uh, the wrestler that, that was famous for the slap heard around the world, man, <laughs> uh, another Hall of Famer, David Schultz. Dr. D. Uh, then the incomparable Mongolian stomper, uh, Dennis Condry, the only member of every Midnight Express combination. And that was one of the best known tag teams in history. Mm -hmm. uh, got a great young baby face uh, in this time frame. It was a member of the present Knoxville crew. And he's going to be a great future heel. One of the dudes from the dark side, Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> you got the legendary Ron Wright. You got Norvell Austin. You got Jimmy Golden. You got gorgeous George Jr. Uh, just basically to name a few. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I was trying to keep up, and if I got it right, I counted 18, and those are huge stars. I count nine more on the two cards in front of me on this stud cast that you didn't even mention by name. That brings the total number of wrestlers under the two-territory Southeastern banner to 27 in the third week of October of 1978. That's, that's a big crew, dude. Uh, well, I never added up the numbers, to be honest with you, man. But, but at that time in 1978, that was probably as many or more wrestlers than any of the largest territories in the world at that point. Wow. Wow. So, in essence, it's just 30 years old. You're 30 years, years old. You owned and operated one of the largest wrestling territories in the world. <laughs> that's a good point i never thought about that like that either dave but, right but i guess i really was so uh so no wonder i was always so darn tired man see this was weird for me because i've known you for a while and i've always seen you as a businessman and i keep forgetting you were 30 freaking years old when all this was happening all right so who and who wouldn't have been tired ron all right so where do we ride today how do we get this stud cast rolling well, we're going to change it up a little bit, this stud cast. We're going to begin this one in the southeastern Gulf Coast. The cards in Alabama and Florida were at this point rivaling those in the Tennessee Territory. Uh, the card in, in the three major cities, Montgomery, Mobile, and Dothan, in the week of October 18, 1978, was probably the best card yet in the southeastern Gulf Coast. And we're going to look at that card. We'll discuss the TV that promoted it. We'll talk about the results of it and the attendance in all three of those cities. Then we're going to ride north into Tennessee with the Friday night card of October 20th, 1978. We'll discuss the TV that promoted that card. We'll get the results of the matches and the attendance, and we'll take another short dive into the coming Knoxville War, 1979. And we've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, but hopefully uh, we'll have enough time to maybe even throw a learning tree question in at the end of it. All right, so it sounds like another great one, no doubt. So since we're riding south first this time, what was the card for the three major markets in southeastern Gulf Coast? It was loaded, man. Uh, Charlie Cook opened the night against Norvell Austin. What a great opening match. Uh, Greg Peterson faced off against David Schultz. Uh, Robert Gibson faced off against Assassin Number 2 in a loser leave. Southeastern Conference Ghost, Coast, Gulf Coast match. Uh, Robert Fuller met Don Carson in an I Quit match. And that was, the way that match worked is the only way 
that uh, to win, you had to have the wrestler that you were wrestling to give up or quit over the PA system for the entire crowd to hear it. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of an unusual uh, type of match, but uh, rarely, rarely had them. But this was a, going to be one between my brother and Don Carson. Then the assassin and their manager, uh, Billy Spears, were going to be in a return match. And uh, they were going to get a chance to win their belts back from the new tag champions, Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles. The main event was the Mongolian Stomper, managed by gorgeous George Jr., and he was going to be getting his first try for my Gulf Coast, which is soon going to be called the Southeastern Championship Belt. Wow. All right, so I think you're exactly right, Ron. This six-match card was probably the best one yet in Southeastern Gulf Coast. So what about the TV that set this whole thing up that, that really just sets the whole stage for it? Well, it was also a great TV, Dave. Uh, for the first time in southeastern Gulf Coast, this TV had videos from all three of the major markets. So fans watching at home uh, who never had never been to a live event in their arena yet were going to see their local buildings in that city full with the fact that, you know, that something special enough to be recorded happened there. When we went and recorded them, it made it special to fans in those local areas. And uh, in this particular week, all the buildings are packed. And in addition to this this type of experience in each market, and because Gordon Soley was no longer doing the show with Charlie Platt, we're going to start giving Charlie Platt, on occasion, a guest commentator. Hmm. So this week's guest was a very special one. Actually, he was a historic one based upon Gulf Coast wrestling history. It was the man responsible for the birth of Gulf Coast wrestling 24 years earlier in 1954. It was my dad, Buddy Fuller. Wow. Okay. That's wow. That's cool, Ron. All right. So it's no wonder we started down South today. This is going to be indeed a really special TV and opportunity for fans of an older generation to see one of their stars. So how do you, how do you kick this show off? What was up first? Well, it would open up, obviously, with Charlie and my father at the set. And uh, Charlie was extremely polite, as always. And he made some really glowing remarks about who my father was, explained a little bit to those younger fans out there who had no idea, probably. And, uh, and, uh, he, and he really expressed how honored he was to have my father as a guest commentator. And uh, then they were joined by a Pensacola-born wrestler, Robert Gibson. Man, we're keeping it down in the Gulf Coast for sure. Uh, they played a video from the Monday night before in Montgomery's beautiful downtown Civic Center, a beautiful building. And it was all about Robert Gibson's match with Norvell Austin. Uh, and uh, then it, in the match, it showed that Gibson was in control. The referee collided with Robert, and the referee uh, went rolling out of the ring. And when he did, both assassins wrestling in a later match, they weren't involved in this match at all. Not even real close friends of Norville Austin, anybody knew. But they came down, they hit the ring, and they attacked Rick Gibson. And uh, he explained that to his brother. You know, he explained, uh, you know, Rick, Robert's watching it, that his brother, Ricky, had lost a lose-or-leave match less than a month earlier and was gone from Southeastern Wrestling. And immediately after he left, he said that uh, it seemed like that the assassins and Billy Spears started making a target out of him. So the video then showed both assassins. They snatched him up. They double pile-drived him. 
while Norvell stood there and watched them. <laughs> then they left the ring. Austin went over, helped the referee back into the ring, went over and covered uh, Ricky Gibson for the win. <laughs> uh, the studio fans, uh, you know, uh, it, it was it was a it was really a they talk about a, a kind of a real bad screw job. That really was, so, <laughs> you know. And then uh, so Robert said after this match that he had asked the Gulf Coast officials to allow him to meet either one of the two assassins. He didn't care which one. In a loser leave match the very next week, he was tired of being a target. And the you know. So the, they they agreed, and the match was set. And uh, then he uh, then he uh, that when he won that match, he said he, he wanted the other assassin to in a loser leave match, and that he was going to try to get even for his brother, and he was going to try to eliminate both assassins in loser leave matches over the next two weeks. And then he would he said he would watch Billy Spears disappear from the area because he's not going to have any wrestlers. So the studio fans, obviously, they loved the idea, and they were still applauding when Robert went to the ring for the first live match of the TV show. And during that match, my father had some very nice comments about both Ricky and Robert, the Pensacola boys, that they were, you know, on both on their way to a big future in wrestling, which was definitely the case. And there was actually an understatement in Robert Gibson's case because he was headed to the Rock and Roll Express, one of the greatest tag teams ever in the history of the sport. So uh, Robert uh, Gibson got himself another win. Uh, the dead left the set before Billy Spears and his assassin team arrived for the first interview. And because this TV had the same card in all three major markets, all the interviews in it were going to be generic and about the same matches in all three cities because the card's mm -hmm. going to be the same in all three cities. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, they were placed these interviews directly into the show as it was being recorded rather than having to pre-record them. So everything was done a little differently. This show went out intact as it had done from beginning to end. Uh, Spears, obviously, it was he was there with his boys. And he was still upset a little bit about the cake in the face incident from the week before. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you can imagine that. And, you know, and then he, he was more upset for hearing for the first time that one of his men was going to have to wrestle in a loser-leave match the following week. Huh. And then go back in the ring the, the same night for a second match to try to get his belt, their belts back from Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles. And, uh, so, you know, he had a little bit of a reason, I suppose, maybe. All right. Well, but do you think he had a legitimate point? How often do, did that type of, of a night happen for a wrestler? I mean, a wrestler in a loser leave match, then, then wrestle in a title match. That's a little unusual. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it didn't happen very often, I can tell you that. But there were some situations where a wrestler didn't show up. And a second and one wrestler would have to wrestle in his place and wrestle twice. Uh, but you don't think the fans had any sympathy for him. <laughs> they didn't care, right? Billy Spears had a ton of heat at that time. I don't think the fans would have cared if one of the assassins had to wrestle five times in a night. You know, <laughs> it wouldn't have made any difference to them. So the next segment opened with another video. Uh, this one had Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles at the set. And uh, they had their newly won tag belts. And the Dothan Studio fans uh, had watched the win over the Assassins the night before. A lot of those fans that came to the studio were always at those Friday night matches live. 
And they had already seen that win the night before, and they went crazy when the new champs came out. They brought their mm-hmm. belts. And, uh, and then they watched their fantastic win, and the studio really celebrated with them, man. So they were basically, it was a Dothan video in this, in this show as well. Mm-hmm. And then Armstrong and Charles, they actually made a great team. Wow. I mean, as you can imagine, Bob Armstrong could do it all, and Tony Charles could do it all too, but in another, in a totally different way. So after the video, they went to the ring and they proved how good they were. And my father was back at the set with Charlie at this point, And he made some great comments that he legitimately believed about both wrestlers in the ring and how they were undoubtedly two of the best in the world. He wasn't exaggerating actually when he said that either, not at all. So then Bob and Tony, they, you know, brought their back, belts back to the set after the match that they won easily, and they did the second interview. And they were ready for their first title defense and happy to see that one of the assassins was putting his future on the line against Robert Gibson before the match, right? And maybe, uh, you know, they said that also uh, that could uh, roll into the second assassin be having to go into a lose-or-leave town match if Gibson were to beat the first one. And, uh, you know, Billy Spears was, uh, he had to be really, really upset by this. And obviously, before they finished that interview, they they spent a little time wishing Rick, Robert Gibson, uh, good luck, man, in this upcoming uh, Loser League Town match with one of the assassins. Personality profile was next. It had three men on it with Charlie. And thankfully, they had cleaned up that area where Billy Spears had his face smashed into the cage the week before. <laughs> I guess they brought in a crew to clean it up because it yeah. was a real mess. Don't, don't step bad. in that. Right. <laughs> and, uh, those three on there were the, were the Fullers. It was me, me Rob, and, uh, and, and, and Buddy. You know, and so Robert and, and, and our father, our Buddy, had joined uh, Charlie. There were a lot of uh, early conversations, um, you know, uh, about uh, about the great territory my father had built in the Gulf Coast in the 1950s. And uh, he had this classic match. He talked a little bit about the classic match in 1958 in Ladd Memorial Football Stadium in Mobile with Mario Galento against my dad. And that drew almost 40,000 fans in 1958. Mm. Uh, so uh, then, uh, you know, uh, our father spoke about how proud he was of us, had a little bit of that. And then finally, we watched the video from Mobile that had occurred three nights earlier. It was the match between myself and the Mongolian Stomper, and it got totally out of control. Uh, gorgeous George Jr. got it started when he came in the ring, tried to assist his Stomper. When the referee went down, he made his move. He tried to help his Stomper uh, Robert ended up coming to the ring, and uh, he started taking care of uh, Gorgeous George. Uh, Don Carson showed up, and he and Gigi were doing a job on Robert. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, our father, you know, uh, you know, it was a sold out, had thousands of people, and uh, some got turned away. A lot of them got turned away from Expo Hall. And you could tell from the crowd noise in the video when my dad hit the ring. You know, uh, there was already full of guys in the ring, but when he got there, there was kind of an explosion in that building, and the referee stopped the match. He called it a no contest, and uh, when the four heels Mm. took a powder and they headed to the dressing room, you could hardly (laughs) see them, man, uh, fighting their way back 
to the dressing room because they were surrounded by a mass of humanity. Those fans in Mobile were crazy, and uh, wow, it was a dangerous place to wrestle. Uh, I wish I could reference the exact studcast or super studcast about your father, that match in Ladd Stadium. Most of us young bucks were not here in 1958. Mobile, Alabama against Mario Galento. That is one of the most legendary matches. And in 1958, almost 40,000 people were there for that. I wish I could say which studcast that it is. And maybe because that's one people need to know about because that truly is the history of wrestling. All right. And that sounded like a historic video in a historic TV show. So, wow. All right. So what's next, Ron? Well, Rob and I were dressed, you know, during this profile when we went there and ready for the ring. And uh, we had not been a tag team together for a very long time at this point. Been, it been, had been close to two years since we'd had a tag match together. And the studio crowd, they didn't care, man. They erupted and we went straight from the profile right into the ring. And uh, we did finish, though, uh, uh, what we hadn't done as a team. We did something in this match that we hadn't done since 1975. And uh, we talked about it before going to the ring. We said, wow, if we can do this, I would love to be able to put this together and make this happen. So uh, we were all four in the ring at the end of that match. And I knocked the guy that was with me out of the ring. Uh, Rob threw his guy into the ropes. He bent over. And he gave him a backdrop. And, uh, and the guy went high up in the air, and when he started down, I caught him up uh, in the air, upside down at his highest point. And, uh, and I, it was kind of like a belly to back. He had his uh, my belly to his back, and his head was pointed straight down toward the mat. I threw my legs out from underneath me, and I dropped my, my rear end as hard as I could, and the back of his head landed on that mat with all of his weight wow. and wow. mine on it. Oh my God! Sounded like an explosion in the ring. It always <laughs> did. This bump was really it just tore people up in the arenas. Wow! And wow. Uh, and it uh, sounded like an explosion in the ring, and it also sounded like an explosion in the bleachers. The fans went whoa, like wow. The crowd popped obviously, and it was one of the most devastating moves in wrestling. It always looked like it killed the guy, you know, and, and a lot of times they didn't get up. So we went straight to the set for the next interview. The studio crowd was still on its feet. And uh, Robert told everybody what he intended to do in his I quit match with Don Carson uh, the next week. Uh, I took my Gulf Coast belt. I held it up over my head, told gorgeous George Jr., you want the belt? Bring your animal. Turn him loose. Because we got the equalizer. And, and about that time, my dad stepped into the shot. Then he got between Rob and I, and we all three grabbed each other by the wrist, raised our hands above our head, and I shouted, we're all fullers. And on our worst day, the three of you don't have a chance. <laughs> I'm going to lose. I quit. Stomper's going to get – I'm going to stomp the stomper. And, uh, and then I'd hate to be gorgeous George Jr., or anybody else that gets involved because you definitely don't want my dad in the ring. <laughs> that had to be an incredible pop. So how do you finish that show out? Well, it was time for some heat, man, and the stomper. We'd had three babyface wins at this point. Uh, you know, uh, Bob Armstrong and uh, Tony Charles, uh, Robert Gibson. So uh, now it was time for Stomper and Carson and Gigi. 
And uh, I don't know about Gigi and Carson, but I know the, I know the stomper was ready because when that came time for them to leave the dress room, the stomper was the first one out. He didn't head to the ring. Uh, he went straight for the bleachers and the fans. And Carson and Gigi, they were trying to hold him back. Uh, and uh, and as it had been since he had got there, the very first TV show, uh, he nearly cleared the bleachers of fans. They all ran again. They ran all over the studio. <laughs> A lot of them went out the front door where they came in. And for the first time, some of them on this 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 run actually went out the back door where the baby face dressing room was. So as you can imagine, it was pandemonium in the studio. And then when the stomper finally hit the ring with Carson, they just demolished the two poor guys who were in there. Uh, and some of the studio crowd had not even made it back in the building yet. This, Bleachers were half empty, and the match was over. They hadn't, the fans hadn't come back because they were so afraid of the mm. stomper. <laughs> Didn't blame them much myself, i got to tell you. So both of their young opponents uh, were bleeding, and uh, they double-pinned them together at the same time. And, uh, and the ring announcer was even afraid to come back to the ring to announce the results of the match. So then Stomper, he turned his attention on the set, man, and it was time for the interview. So he charged the set. My dad had already left the set, but the Stomper seemed like he was kind of looking for it. And then the last interview started, but uh, there was no, uh, you know, when that last interview got underway, uh, that Stomper this time didn't have that truck shock with him, man, you know, that he was cranking. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. He was that he was way beyond that this time. Uh, he was out of control. Carson <laughs> and Gigi were trying to get control of him. He kept shoving them. He even shoved Charlie a couple of times and pushed his head down on the desk one time. <laughs> Charlie and he Black kept looking into the cameras and shouting, "Ooh, ooh!" That's what he would do, wow, he had this wild look on his face. So the first three matches of the show made made it seem like. Uh, this was going to be an all baby face affair, but by golly, the Mongolian stomper, he took all that away in less than 10 minutes. I mean, he took control and Charlie had a top hard time even closing the show because the stomper was still at it. He was refusing to go to the dressing room. He was still out in front of Charlie when he was closing the show. He wanted to get home. He oh. Was oh my God. I remember those shows. And we all remember those shows when we were kids and, we're running out of time, and, and it's just mayhem at the end of the show. And you got the stomper. Nobody's leaving that. That is an awesome TV show. All right, it had to be one of the best of all time, really. So what about the result of this card in all three major markets the next week? Well, Norville Austin beat Charlie Cook. And, uh, wow, it was a very good opening match. I watched it all three nights, and, uh, and it, it had two great veterans. It had to be good, and it was an absolutely fantastic way to open up a card. Uh, then Dr. D, David Schultz, he dominated poor little Greg Peterson, man, in all three of those cities. Don Carson won the I Quit match, and, uh, and it, went, uh, it went quite a while with both men uh, refusing to give up on the house microphone and uh, Rob kept working Carson's leg when he could get to it. He was trying to get the full leg lock on him because this is basically a submission match. And he finally got it. And uh, when he did, it, it was, it was basically should have been over. It was a surefire win at that point. The referee got the microphone, the referee, every time a man was down and in a position where he, 
He might submit, the referee would get the microphone and he would put it into the man's face and he had to say, I quit over the microphone. And uh, so he was standing, the referee standing right over Carson. Uh, he's laying there on his back. Rob's got it, the, the fuller leg lock on him. And uh, he's got the microphone down in Carson's face and asking him if he quits. And uh, Carson reached up and he grabbed the ref man by the shirt. And he jerked him down on top of both him and Robert. And the hole was broken. Obviously, when that happened, Rob couldn't hang on to the hole mm. because the referee fell face first into Rob's knee. Ooh. And it about knocked the referee out. He was laying on top of Rob. And uh, Carson had to crawl out of, out, of, out of the leg lock, basically. And then at that point, here come both the assassins. They came to the ring. They rolled the ref. Uh, off of Rob. They double pile drive Rob. Then he went back to the dressing room before the ref even saw him. And he got, you know, ref finally got back on his feet. Carson couldn't stand up after the pain of the leg lock. So he crawled over and he put a sleeper hold on Rob. Like he was the one responsible for putting Rob to sleep while the referee didn't see it. But finally the ref got, got over to where he was. He brought the microphone to Rob for Rob to give up. And, uh, and then the ref realized that Rob wasn't, Rob was out. So he lifted his arm three times, which was the normal thing for mm -hmm. a sleeper hole. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Rob dropped it all three times. The ref rang the bell and he raised Carson's hand. Well, as you can imagine, the crowd was pretty upset by that since the assassins had actually done the dirty work. Mm -hmm. And so then the next match, uh, it was just as hot as that one. So it was Robert Gibson taking on assassin number two and the loser of the match had to leave Southeastern. So Gibson was very strong through that whole match. And then he finally got his hands on Billy Spears at the end of that match. And, uh, and then while the second referee of the, of the night, because the first referee had had an injury, there was a second one and he was handling this match. He was trying to separate him. Assassin number one, uh, Came into the ring, nailed him from behind, and uh, and then when the referee went down, he piledrived Robert Gibson. He put his partner on top of him. He pulled the ref over to over to the wrestlers, and uh, and he went to the dressing room. And the ref counted Gibson out. He raised his assassin number two's hand in victory, and the building really went crazy at this point. Now this is twice in a row this has happened. All right, so that's if I'm. Count, count this. That's four straight wins in the first four matches for the heels, right? Was that right. Was, was that best for business, Ron? Well, you know, <laughs> and if you think back, man, when we opened Southeastern Gulf Coast about eight months earlier, I used to say uh -huh. heat on the heels built business faster than anything. Right, right. So, so this particular night, we were really, really cranking it. So that's why... <laughs> I think that's why we had come so far so fast as the territory, because we had a lot of heat on the heels mm. uh, since we had started that territory. Mm. And this night in particular was becoming one of those tremendous heel nights where heat from the finishes was going to go a long way to making the heels red hot again. So uh, match number five might have saved the night from a horrible riot, I'll tell you that. You know, if it had another one, another one that went the wrong direction, I don't know what might have happened that night. 
But Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles, they successfully defended their tag belts against assassins and the manager, Billy Spears. And, uh, and he, had, uh, he had been, uh, you know, uh, right there with his boys pretty much the whole night. They'd been involved in a couple of matches before their own. And uh, you can only imagine, man, what a pop there was when Bob Armstrong put assassin number two to sleep for the win of, the, uh, of their first title defense <laughs> of Tony Charles. Wow. So uh, then the main event was uh, for the now called at this point Southeastern Championship. And the Mongolian stomper managed by Gorgeous George Jr. was obviously getting his first shot at, at, at the title. And, uh, and I'd become kind of an over, overnight babyface sensation at this point. Fans really had gotten into me, and, uh, and th- this match was kind of for all the marbles. So, and, and because of what had happened already that during the night, the fans were really ready for this one. And so was my father, but not my brother. I mean, he'd been double pile-drived, uh, and that kind of ended his night. He wasn't able to come back out and even watch this match. So I took the match, man, to, to the big monster, man, and, uh, you know, the, the stomper himself. And, uh, and I had him on the ropes, and, and I covered him for pins several times, but he kicked out. The, he was in such phenomenal shape, and what a tremendous athlete he was. And then finally, Gigi he had to make his move to try to save his meal ticket, man, because I, I, I thought I was going to just beat him in the middle. And, uh, and I got my hands on Gigi. And when I did, man, the building exploded. Boy, I had to my opportunity to, to kick Gigi's butt a little bit. And, uh, and here they came again, man, the assassins, man. And, uh, and uh, they'd put up, you know, uh, at this point, the Southeastern, you know, they'd never come. They'd been involved in matches. But this is the first time I'd ever seen him involved in a match with the Stomper or Gigi. They had never gone stooped to that level. So, so my father was a uh, pretty well known in the business for being a little stiff in the ring. To be honest with you, Dave, fan, wrestlers didn't like to wrestle Dad, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it'd been a long time at this point since Dad had had a wrestling match. You know, and the assassins uh, started into the ring. And uh, I had no idea he was watching, much less he was right there. Uh, I had no idea he was right beside me or just behind me. And uh, the assassins are coming in the ring. I never saw him until he football punted one of those guys in the face. Oh he got on the apron of the ring. And he sent that 300-pounder flying uh, into the front row of ringside. And took out people in the chairs. I was like, oh, my God, almighty dead. You killed him. (laughs) And then I grabbed the other one, uh, and he was still bent over, coming through the ropes. And I gave him, Ben, what they had been giving everybody else that night. I gave one of those boys a pile driver. And, uh, boy, the building was exploding at that point. Uh, Billy Spears, he he came, got involved. He got in the ring, and, gosh, Dad grabbed him and uh, and he hit him with one of those roundhouse right hands that was that he was famous for. He knocked him in the next week, man. <laughs> I think Billy Spears probably could even think for two days. Uh, then the stomper grabbed me from behind. Gigi went for a right hand. I ducked, and the stomper got nailed by Gigi and uh, got another huge pop. And then me and Dad were cleaning the house, man. But we didn't notice probably the most backstabbing heel of all of them, man, was not accounted for. And then Don Carson arrived. He loaded his glove. And uh, 
he got he was behind dad and uh, dad never saw him uh, he never saw him coming Carson hit him in the back of the head with a loaded glove and uh, and then uh, I, I grabbed Carson and uh, guy went down on top of him and I was I was trying to get even for it stomper got me from behind and he held me for Carson and Carson hit me with the glove and uh, that ended the night for me just like it had for my father so uh, one referee had been knocked out during all this, and the second one arrived after Carson left the ring. Stomper rolled Dad out of the ring. He covered me, and I was counted out. The belt was given to the Stomper, and uh, mm. Gigi, uh, Carson, uh, Billy Spears, both assassins, uh, just about the whole heel dressing room were in the ring, and they all got surrounded by the policemen. Uh, in all three of the buildings that week, and they fought their way to the dressing room every night. Uh, did, did you did you ever in private have wrestlers coming up to you going, uh, "When's your dad getting the hell out of town?" Yeah, <laughs> they always hated to see him come. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Much less get their hands on him, uh, get their hand, his hands on him. I, I can't be in the ring with him. Good God! Okay, all right. Listen, that's awesome, but I've never heard or seen anything like that six men to beat two those heels were lucky to get back to the dressing room period so how about attendance in all three major arenas for that week well montgomery civic center had 3900 in it right at 4000 people uh, mobile's auditorium which was the bigger of the two buildings on that facility had 7000 people man it was right up there with the harley race night uh, Dothan's Farm Center had 5,100. Uh, and uh, the, those three total cities uh, packed, put together 16,000 fans hmm. for those three nights. Uh, wow. And wow. that territory had only been in business for eight months. Pretty amazing. Oh, absolutely. This is an incredible stud cast so far. I got to say that. All right. Let, hey, let's do this. Let's get our break in. And when we come back, we'll take a ride this time to the north as opposed to the south like we've been doing. And we'll head into southeastern Knoxville territory for a first ever tag team Russian death match. That is right after the break when we come back on this stud cast. Okay, and something unusual, I don't know what's up, but Ron said, Ron, you said specifically you want to, you have something to say to our listeners during the break you're not talking about well i'm not sure what you're talking about but you go ahead go ahead the floor is yours sir well okay great you know i mean always you do the break usually dave but uh i wanted to kind of apologize again for uh, the missing one week because of uh, a problem with my computer uh but at the same time i also want to thank fans out there uh the studcast is continues to set records and and I really, really appreciate everybody's loyalty. Uh, and uh, and I also appreciate the fact that they seem to really like the, the fact that we've got two territories that we talk about in the studcast now. And, uh, and I, I want to look to the future a little bit and let fans know that, that we're about to get into 1979. And when we do, we're going to be talking about much more than just the wrestling matches themselves. We're going to be talking about one of the most unusual things in all of professional wrestling. We're going to be talking about a wrestling war a whole lot uh, during 1979, uh, how it gets started, why it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to cover a whole lot of that. 
so we're doing a whole lot of things now. We've got two territories uh, going, and uh, and I really uh, just want to thank everybody for their support out there, uh, for uh, joining us for all these studcasts, and uh, and it's only going to get better, friends. Hey, I want to echo that too, Ryan. I, I really appreciate listeners and folks hit me up on Facebook. They say, man, I love the way you and Ron go back and forth and you guys have fun on the Studcast. And listen, I got to say, Ryan, you don't even have to be as forthcoming as you are about your free time. Your free time is your free time. You spend a tremendous amount of time putting these Studcasts together and you've apologized enough. So you don't have to worry about that. We got your back on this. Uh, you missed what? One stud cast in 272. Can you, can you try to do better, dude? <laughs> uh, anyway, let's get back into the show. And, and listen, thanks for that. And listen, we do appreciate the listeners. That Obviously, you wouldn't spend this research and this time like you do without so many listeners from so many places, literally around the world. And that means so much to both of us. Absolutely. All right, Stud, a lot to cover. So where do we ride first on the last half of this Studcast? Well, man, we're going to head into Chilhowie Park's Jacob Building. Uh, we're going to be on Friday night, October the 20th, 1978. Uh, and the first match uh, on this card was a return match from the week before that ended in a time limit draw. It was Terry Gibbs against George McCrary. And this time, uh, it was a 30-minute time limit. Went up from a 20-minute to a 30-minute time limit. Uh, both these guys had great matches. Terry Gibbs was a gifted gifted wrestler, and uh, George McCrary was a legendary amateur wrestler. So, uh, you know, the, another great way is we opened up the card up down there in southeastern Gulf Coast with a great match. We're opening up one this way in, uh, up there in the north in uh, Knoxville. And uh, then uh, the recently returning uh, Mike Stallings was meeting newcomer, hippie, Mike Boyette. Uh, the next match on this card was the Ron Wright bounty match. And, uh, and I got I to say this, Dave, I recently mentioned that bounty on, uh, on another stud guest. Might have been the last one or the one before for sure. And, uh, and I said it was for $10,000 to anyone that could put Kevin Sullivan in the hospital. Well, I had a great fan sent me uh, on social media a photo of the original bounty offer from Ron Wright. And, uh, and, I, and I found out there was only 5000 rather than the 10000 And uh, obviously, uh, I want to make this right. And I, and I want to thank this gentleman for the photo and uh, for keeping me as accurate as possible. Uh, considering we're talking about events that happened 44 years ago, I'm going to get confused a little bit every once in a while about some of the facts, uh, obviously, because we're dealing with a, a pretty good time spread here between these two events, the one we're doing now and what actually happened 44 years ago. So that bounty match was going to be between Kevin Sullivan and Ken Dillinger, and uh, Ron Wright was going to be barred from ringside. Uh, then the next match on that card was for the Southeastern Tag Championship. There was a no-DQ clause in this contract. The team of Jimmy Golden and Rip Smith had won the belts on Friday, October 10th, just about a couple of weeks earlier, uh, and Tor Tanaka had seconded them in that match in which they won the belts. Dennis Condry and uh, Phil Hickerson uh, were obviously going to be wrestling them to try to regain the belts. And they were presented by who, by at this point, uh, 
he called himself Ron Wright Incorporated. So, so last week, some of these wrestlers had been in a six-man cage match. Uh, they're going to be now wrestling for the titles again. The main event on this one was the first-ever tag team Russian death match in southeastern Knoxville history. Uh, Ronnie Garvin, Tortanaka, going to be facing the great Malenko and the new masked man, the Destroyer, who many people would believe was Bob Roop. And uh, Bob Roop had suddenly disappeared from southeastern wrestling, and along comes a guy that looks almost exactly like him, even wears the same outfit. So, uh yeah, a lot of things are going on in Knoxville at this point. Okay, so that is also a loaded card stud. All right, so who was on the TV show six days before this event to promote it? Well, this TV recap is going to be a little shorter than usual because I didn't talk as much to less about it as usual. I don't have as many notes. and uh, So there, there was so much going on at this time, and uh, – it's hard for me to, to keep up with everything. So I, I do know that the show opened up with Ronnie Garvin and Tor Tanaka, and they watched a video from the night before where the new mass destroyer for the second week in a row got involved in the great Malenko Southeastern title defenses. Uh, he had done it one week when he wrestled Garvin for the belt. He had done it the next week when he wrestled Tanaka for the belt. And uh, both times, he made this destroyer, managed to save Malenko's belt. And Garvin and Tanaka, for the first time in Southeastern history, were going to be partners. And uh, the next Friday night, and they were going to be against Malenko and the mass destroyer. And it's going to be in a Russian death match. So while the, ended, the video ended uh, this extraordinary, uh, you know, uh, when it ended with this extraordinary Garvin and Tanaka team, wow, that's a pretty amazing team. Uh, they went to the ring as soon as the video was over. And Les said, man, they got a tremendous standing ovation from the studio audience. They got, obviously, a powerful win, and uh, they returned to the set for the first interview of the show about their Russian death match uh, the following Friday night. Uh, Jimmy Golden and Rip Smith started the second segment of the show with the tag team championship belts in front of them. They were the champions. They showed a video from two weeks earlier where they had won the belts. They showed Tanaka in their corner, uh, and he was able to keep Ron Wright out of the match, and uh, they were able to get the win for the belts. And, uh, and they got them from Ron Wright's almost unbeatable champions. Uh, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson were a tremendous team. Uh, the studio fans obviously loved that video. And then uh, Ron certainly, Ron Wright certainly didn't, though. You know, and uh, so he brought his team after they got a win. Uh, the, the two boys uh, said he brought his team to the ring. And, uh, and Golden, uh, as soon as they finished the video, uh, he, he sat down to, to have some comments as his boy was wrestled. And uh, he rambled on, man. Uh, but Les said he rambled on about everything from his new mass destroyer to Kevin Sullivan's bounty that he had offered up to having so many wrestlers now. Ron Wright said that he had to incorporate himself to protect all the money he was making. So while this was going on, Les said his team totally demolished uh, their opponents, which wasn't unusual for those two boys. And then Wright and his team started a second interview from the set with Golden and Smith in the Studio B. And uh, Les said Ron Wright opened the interview saying that 
that it that match had his team had just won was a perfect example of how good old Tennessee dog whooping uh, they were, and they were going to give another Tennessee dog whooping on Friday night <laughs> to the boys in Chilhai Park. And they're going to get their precious tag team belts back, <laughs> put them around their waist. I'm going to strap them on. He was just, he went on and on. As Ron Wright was on, only capable of doing, man. <laughs> Not many people could do what he did, man, in yeah, the, on yeah. the microphone. Uh, then Golden and Smith, uh, they had their interview from Studio B, and obviously they had other thoughts. So either way, the following Friday night, there was going to be a Tennessee dog fight there, no doubt. So the personality profile was with the hottest young star in southeastern Knoxville at that point, Kevin Sullivan. And uh, for change, less said, uh, you know, the profile was uh, just that. Uh, lots of conversation. And this is the way profiles were set up to be, to find out what people, uh, what was going on in their lives and their, you know, all this a conversation, basically. This one started out with lots of conversation, uh, uh, less said. Uh, Kevin talked about his Boston childhood, uh, where he came from. Talked about his love for Eastern Tennessee and the fans there, man. And, uh, and, 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 you know, they loved him. Wow. He had really, really kind of taken the hearts of the Tennessee fans. It was really crazy to watch how easily he got over. And uh, they did touch him toward the end of that profile on the bounty that Ron Wright had put on him, $5,000 for anyone that could put Kevin in the hospital. And then his upcoming, they talked about his upcoming bounty match with Ken Dillinger, a wrestler who happened to have a reputation for injuring people. So Kevin said he was more concerned about Ron Wright being at ringside with Dillinger than he was about Dillinger himself. And, uh, you know, it made sense to Les, and it sure made sense to the fans. Ron Wright was always getting in, interfering in the match. So Les told Kevin that he'd speak to the Southeastern officials when the profile was over to see if there's something that could be done about Ron Wright being at ringside. Hmm. Hmm. So Kevin is in the next match. He went straight into the ring and Les went back to the set and he got on the phone. And those people that have seen that uh, Southeastern video uh, from 1978 know that there's a phone on the end, edge of the desk there and Les got on the phone as he had promised Kevin and uh, he started talking to Southeastern officials about the Ron Wright situation. And then um, Phil Rainey, who was the ring announcer after he announced the match, he came and he was sometimes the host and he knew that Les was trying to get something done. He sat in and he started describing the Sullivan match until Les got off the phone. As soon as Les got off the phone, he was able to announce to the viewers that Ron Wright was not going to be allowed at ringside the following Friday night for the bounty match uh-uh. between uh-uh. Sullivan and Dillinger. Hmm. And as you can imagine, Ron Wright heard it on a monitor in the dressing room, and here he came, directly to the set, you know, and uh, he started screaming at Les, and Phil Rainey took off because he was horrified of any confrontation with the wrestlers. You know, he got out of the way real quick-like, and uh, Hmm. Sullivan ended his match. He won his match. He kind of saw what was happening at the set, and he went straight to the set. Ron Wright was just about to grab Les up, (laughs) Les <laughs> said, I thought he was going to grab me, Ron, maybe slap me or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and he said, uh, so Sullivan went right to the set. And then suddenly Ken Dillinger, who was Kevin's opponent for the next Friday night, 
he just appeared from out of nowhere and, and he was there to back up Ron Wright. So uh, Les didn't want a problem at the set. And so he quickly just said, hey, let's take a commercial break. Let's get out of this, basically. You know, they avoided some something bad, something uh, that shouldn't happen happening on the show. Yeah, that might have been for the best. All right, but it seems to me, Ron, that, that Ron Wright has his hands in almost every match and almost everything going on in southeastern Knoxville with the new Masked Destroyer, with the tag team champions, and now with Kevin Sullivan and that bounty, it's, it's like Ron Wright, he's everywhere. <laughs> I mean, pretty astute of you, Dave, <laughs> you know, and he definitely was, you know. And, and I think maybe Bob Root, who was the new booker of southeastern Knoxville at this point, uh, and uh, he obviously was very fond of Ron Wright. So uh, remind me later, man, and we'll get back to this subject because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the wrestling war. Uh, so, But for right now, as they say in sports, let's return to the action, okay? So we'll get back to it. Uh, so then after the commercial break, then uh, they had stopped, uh, they had actually potentially stopped a bad scene at the set. Uh, Sullivan went into Studio B for the next interview, and Ron Wright and his henchman, Ken Dillinger, were on the set with Les. And, uh, and as soon as the red light, as soon as the red light went on, uh, Ron Wright, as usual, jumped right on it. Man, he got right into it. And, uh, and he, was, he was threatening Les, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and then he was really upset that he had been barred from ringside the next Friday night. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the $5,000 bounty match. And, mm-hmm. and uh, then thankfully, uh, you know, uh, Ken Dillinger, uh, he, he kind of pulled right back from Les, right? Was angry with it, uh, the, you know, getting involved. And now you've got me kicked out of being able to be at ringside. I want to see my man do the job. And uh, so he was about to get on right. And uh, Dillinger grabbed a hold of his own manager, so to speak. And he told Ron Wright to settle down. He said, uh, and very calmly, Les said he was very, Dillinger was very calm. He says, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to get this job done for you. Uh, and just as I've done in a whole lot of places around the country. And, uh, you know, I guarantee you, Kevin Sullivan is headed for the hospital next Friday night. And uh, that uh, he, was, he was more concerned about Wright having his bounty money when the job was done. <laughs> so, yeah, he basically said, well, you know, I, I'm not so sure about you, man. <laughs> Can you give me this five grand? So, you know, Ron Wright's money was pretty good. He was, uh, like you said, involved in everything. He's, he's, he's really got it going. Mm-hmm. And he reached in his pocket and he brought out a handful less than a hundred dollar bills, man. Hello. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. And then hello, that's it. And Les said, you know, I, I couldn't take any more at that point, Ron. Now we're paying people right there to hurt people. <laughs> and he said, I threw the remainder of the interview to Kevin. They said, let's take it to Studio B with Kevin, right? Wow. So, so this match, you know, basically, it, by, with that kind of buildup, it really had real impact for the following Friday night. Oh, I definitely say that, Stud. All of this attention was making our young wrestler a big star and also making Ron Wright a very hot heel again. Well, both Kevin and Wright deserved it, basically. (laughs) Kevin was a great worker. Ron Wright was a, wow, legend, I guess is a good word word for it. Easily, yeah. 
So the last TV match of the show was with the great Malenko and the mass destroyer. Uh, and they were setting the stage maybe, you know, uh, uh, well, obviously, uh, for the upcoming Russian death tag match that was coming up the next Friday night, they left both their opponents laying. And I mean, really laying this because Malenko stomped his man unconscious, uh, which he he loved to do on all of his matches. And the destroyer used his extremely dangerous shoulder breaker on the other opponent. Now, he had hurt Bill Golden with it. He had hurt uh, anybody ever did that move to they got hurt and uh, neither of those two young guys that they did this to walked away from the ring. And the one that got the shoulder breaker from the destroyer uh, had to be taken to the hospital for x-rays. So, and that made a pretty, pretty big statement uh, beyond what mere words could. Hmm. That was another fantastic TV, no doubt. So 500 miles North, of where the other territory was producing one on the same afternoon as all that was going on. So how about the result of the Knoxville matches Friday, October 20th, 1978? Well, Terry Gibbs uh, won the special 30-minute time limit match. Uh, He beat George McCrary. Mike Stallings uh, got a very impressive win over hippie Mike Boyette. Mike Stallings was still a good wrestler, and uh, and it was going to be start to be used a lot better. Uh, the $5,000 Ron Wright bounty match with Kevin Sullivan against Ken Dillinger took place without Ron Wright at ringside. Uh, he came down with Ken Dillinger thinking he's going to get away with it, but he was escorted back to the dressing room by, by the men in blue, the Knoxville police. I think they probably enjoyed that, <laughs> sacking him up and taking him back to the dressing room. Uh, Wright didn't show up at, at the ringside, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, the destroyer did, but the destroyer did, you know, and uh, he got everyone in the building on his feet when he came. The uh, destroyer had Kevin up on his shoulder, and he was going to give him a shoulder breaker. And uh, I guess he would have collected the money without doubt, because uh, that would have probably sent Kevin to the hospital, no doubt. But uh, Tor Tanaka was in the back, and he had, he saw the destroyer come to the ring, and he went. And he got in the ring, and he actually pulled Kevin right off the masked man's shoulder, man, to keep him from doing the move. And uh, he and uh, Tanaka and, Sutton, and Tan, uh, Tanaka and destroyer got into it. They fought the outside of the ring, and Kevin Sutton. Sullivan continued his march to being a star, man. He quickly put the, put the Quahanis to Ken Dillinger in the middle of the ring. And, uh, wow, uh, he was really at this point getting over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the building was still on their feet. Uh, Malenko and, and Tanaka, uh, Tanaka and Destroyer are fighting out there on the floor. And uh, Malenko came down to the ring. And uh, then Ronnie Garvin saw what was going on. He came down to the ring. And instead of the Russian death match being last, it just went, it started right then. You know, there's no stopping it. They just uh, tried to announce it. They never got an, an, uh, a normal announcement. The fight was going on, and the, the announcer just announced it from the floor. They rang the bell, and that match was underway. And it was a pretty grueling match. Those uh, Russian death matches and Russian chain matches were always bloody. And uh, three of the guys were bleeding uh, for much of the match. And then it was finally won by the great Malenko and the Destroyer team. And then, uh, so then Ron Wright's uh, great 
Dennis Condry and Phil Higgerson team uh, was the last match of the night, and they re-won. They regained their Southeastern tag belts against Jimmy Golden and Rip Smith, but uh, without Ron Wright's help because uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, it was an ODQ match, and uh, Ron Wright, uh, you know, he, he, he interfered because he didn't have to worry about the DQ. And he actually used his chisel on Jimmy Golden that night. Uh, and he not only busted him up, but he mm. knocked him out. And the four wrestlers in the tag team war were just beginning, man. These four were going to go at it again for several weeks. Wow, that's another great night of wrestling for fans, from literally from Kentucky all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So the card in Knoxville had started, this is cool, just one hour before the one in Dothan, Alabama, 500 miles to the south. Time change is the difference, East East Coast time and then Central time. So what was the attendance at this Knoxville event? Well, it was in the Jacobs building, like I mentioned it there, uh, earlier, uh, at the Enchihuahua Park, where the size of the crowd obviously limited, was very limited by the size of the building. So uh, they still managed to squeeze in about 4,000 fans. Hmm. That was more hmm. than you know I ever thought that they would get in there. Wow. And Les wow. said probably a thousand more were turned away that couldn't get in the arena that night. Holy cow. All right. So it's a shame that the park building was not any larger. If I recall correctly, you said Dothan on this same night in southeastern Gulf Coast, you had over 5,000 fans. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we had over 5,000 and 4,000 in Knoxville. Knoxville's building was the problem. And uh, we... We're going to be in that building two more times before the end of the year, mm-hmm. but uh, the Coliseum on all the other events. So uh, it, it it wasn't going to limit us very much. So the Gulf Coast Territory outdrew the Knoxville Territory in this week that we're talking about by more than 6,000 fans. And it was amazing. Knoxville had been in business for four years, and the Gulf Coast Territory had been in business for less than eight months. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, that kind of fast growth after struggling so hard to build Knoxville had to be hard for you to believe. Oh, yeah, it definitely was, man. Uh, But I was certainly happy to see it, I can tell you that. (laughs) I mean, it's like literally rolling the dice. In the beginning, you had no idea what would happen. And then one night you're going, wow, we've got these two incredible shows going at the same time. All right, you you said to ask you later about my question of why it seemed Ron Wright was being involved in so many things in southeastern Knoxville during this time period in 1978. Yeah, you know, and thanks for reminding me about this, man. Mm -hmm. I'm just uh, mulling over my mind here a a little bit about this this whole thing. So so I think what was happening with Ron Wright and the Knoxville Booker Bob Root was kind of the beginning of what was going to be – one of the factors that brought about the Knoxville War in 1979. Uh, at this point, uh, Roop had been there for a booker for about a month, uh, and friendships and business relationships were being created basically from the moment he started as the booker, and he had been a wrestler there before becoming the booker. And uh, at this point, my brother had left Southeastern, uh, the, uh, Knoxville, to head down south to the Gulf Coast, uh, he left actually the first week in September of 78. Uh, I wasn't there. So we weren't able to see 
what was actually going on in Knoxville very much. Uh, and this is kind of, uh, well, you know, we're still very early in this continuing discussion of basically for me, the worst year in my wrestling career, 1979. And, and I think all Studcast fans are going to be blown away with this remarkable story of the Knoxville wrestling war, 1979 could do many Studcasts just based upon that. And the best part of this is, uh, in the coming months, the stud cast, being able to do this in a stud cast and talk about it in a stud cast over a long period of time, it's going to allow me to go into greater depth about this subject than I ever have before. Hey, I'm pretty sure everybody out there and the fans around the world that know little about it are looking forward to one of the sports really, truly historic stories as much as I am. And listen, I'm sorry, Stud, but I don't think we're going to have enough time for a learning tree question today. It's been another great look into two territories, Southeastern Operation in 1978. Just really good stuff. Hopefully next week we'll have time for everything, including another learning tree question. In the meantime, folks, on Facebook, Ron has thousands of Facebook friends and on his three sites. So he appreciates every one of them, of course. One site is full. Can't take more friends there. To become a friend on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, or Ron Fuller Welch site on Facebook. Like him, follow him there. Automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, it's simple. Ron Fuller Welch. Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Follow him there. The YouTube channel, Southeastern Rewind. It's filled with all kinds of information and videos. It also is a great place to find out more about what's new on his tremendous streaming channel, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Speaking of which, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud. His old school Southeastern Continental and USA TV shows that now number in the hundreds are there. A new three-hour stars of the sport, Super Studcast with former NWA champ Terry Funk and Stan Hansen with, for the first time, photos from the beginning to the end. The ninth chapter of his thrilling Lion novel, The Story Brutus, is now there too, in audio form. Well over 300 hours of wrestling entertainment, and it grows every week. Subscribe now. And begin the wrestling ride of your life. It's only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year. It gets you the best old school wrestling streaming channel on the planet, no doubt. The one-week free trial is still available. It is the best deal in wrestling. All right, Stud, where do we ride next week? Well, Southeastern Knoxville has a tremendous card next week. It's another Garvin versus Malenko Southeastern title match. But this time, the special referee is going to be none other than Tora Tanaka. Uh, we've got a Southeastern Tag Team title match again. Uh, we got a bounty match. This time, it's going to be with Tanaka and Kevin Sullivan against the Destroyer and Ron Wright himself in the ring. Uh, they're also going to be a Southeastern uh, in Gulf Coast. Uh, it's not going to be outdone. I can tell you that. It has two loser leave matches. Uh, one of them with me against Don Carson. And the second one is a tag match with my brother and my father, Buddy Fuller, in the ring against the Assassins. And uh, plus there's two championship matches on that same card. So hopefully next week 
we'll also have time for another learning tree. And uh, I want to thank all the listeners again uh, uh, today for joining us. And uh, please tell your friends about what we do here. If you enjoy what you hear and take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. Always so much fun. Thanks, Stud, for Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains. I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.